Welcome to those who have come for this Dhamma talk tonight. I'll begin with the homage to the Buddha, the Namo Tassa, and you may join if you wish. Namo Tassa Bhagavato Arahato Sama Sambuddhasa Namo Tassa Bhagavato Arahato Sama Sambuddhasa Namo Tassa Bhagavato Arahato Sama Sambuddhasa In this talk tonight, I'm going to address different topics in relation to our metta meditation practice. First, I will speak about the place, the metta metta meditation practice, its place in the Buddha's teaching. Then, talk about metta as a relational practice, then talking about metta, which is not only a noun, but also a verb, and finally metta as an antidote to anger, ill will, or all forms of dosa. So, metta's place within the context of the Buddha's teaching. Metta meditation is a meditation practice that falls into the category of samatha meditation, which is translated, can be translated as tranquility meditation or concentration meditation. And for the practice of Samatha meditation, we have 40 different objects which can be the object to develop uh, concentration or one-pointedness of mind. So among these 40 different objects are Anapana or Anapanasati, observing the breath. Another practice is Buddhanusati, the recollection of the Buddha's attributes. Or then we have the different kasinas. Kasinas, these are devices of colored discs, different colors, white or red or blue, or discs with earth, water, different elements. And among these 40 objects, we have the so-called four Brahma Viharas. 
the four divine abidings. And metta, loving-kindness, is one of these four Brahma-viharas, or divine abidings. The other three Brahma-viharas are Karuna, which is compassion, Mudita, sympathetic joy, and Upeka, equanimity. These four Brahma-viharas, or boundless states, they are wholesome states of mind, of heart, to deal with whatever we encounter in our life. And for me, they are especially useful in day-to-day -day life. And it would be very good if we could dwell in these states all the time, or well, one of these states at the time. And when I say it would be good that we could dwell in one of these four boundless states, Vihara, like the Brahma, Viharas, Vihara is a dwelling, a dwelling place. And so, if you could stay or dwell in one of these four Brahma-viharas, then in this way we would be able to meet each situation in our life, in our meditation, with a wholesome state of mind. And this would mean that we do not react with our habitual unwholesome or harmful states of mind, such as anger, ill will, craving, jealousy, and so on. So for example, instead of reacting with anger, we dwell in metta and tell the other person in a friendly way that the situation is such and such and that this and that should be done. Or, instead of falling into anxiety, we can show compassion for the strong pain of our sick friend. Or else, instead of feeling jealousy, we can rejoice in the success of our colleague at work. Or instead of falling into despair about the increasing destruction of the forests, let's say in Indonesia or in the Amazonas, we can dwell in equanimity and we can see what we can actively do to prevent this destruction from happening. After the 9-11 attacks on the World Trade Center in New York, <coughs> a service was held in Yangon, in Burma, in memory of all the people 
who had died in this um, attack. And the service was organized by expats living in Yangon and they invited uh, leaders of the different religions present in Burma. So they invited a Christian priest, priest, a Buddhist monk, a Hindu priest, maybe a Jewish rabbi, and I don't know exactly who else, because I was not present at that meeting, but I heard about that service from my teacher, Sayadaw Ujanaka, because he was invited as a representative of the Buddhist community. And I was reflecting, what could one possibly say at such a ceremony in the face of such a mean and cruel attack? Sayadaw Ujjanaka told me later that he spoke about the four Brahma Viharas. And with this he was pointing out that there are mind states that can deal with even such almost unthinkable atrocities so that one can deal with them in a wholesome uh, manner. But of course, this does not come naturally for most of the people anyway. But it shows that we can get away from these unwholesome, destructive and harmful reactions or habitual patterns. We develop these four Brahma-viharas by taking different kinds of persons or living beings as the object of our meditation. And with this we come to the relational level of this practice. So this means these four meditations, the Brahma-viharas, they deal with living beings and we have a certain relationship with these beings. We feel very close to some of these beings, to others our relationship is not very intimate and then we have kind of neutral relationships to certain persons, beings, and then there are many, many uh, people and uncountable living beings we do not even know and that we have never seen or met. And yet, there is a relationship in regard to them. It's a relationship based on our interconnectedness 
with these living beings. Because in one way or another, we are interconnected. We are in relation with them. So, all the four Brahma-viharas, they are all a relational practice. We deal with living beings who live in this world, or wherever they may be. So coming to metta, to loving-kindness, Loving-kindness <coughs> is always relational. It is our attitude we have in regard to ourselves and our attitude in regard to others, to other living beings. And of course, the same applies to the other three Brahma-viharas, to compassion, sympathetic joy, and equanimity. So the relational level of metta becomes very obvious on the level of our actions, physical actions, and on the level of our speech, of what we say. On this level it manifests quite obviously because we can see what others do, their physical actions, and we can hear what they say, you know, their speech. So then metta is expressed as actions, physical actions, and as speech. It's a bit more difficult to see or know whether or not metta is present in the mind of somebody else. As I said, in the practice of metta meditation, we deal with other living beings as they live in this world. And this means that with this practice, we stay on a conventional level. Like this conventional level in which we talk about other beings, such as human beings or animals, or we talk about benefactors and enemies, we talk about difficult persons and friends, we talk about others and me. So we use these words or these concepts to refer to ourselves and to other living beings. So we use these words and concepts in our metta meditation practice to direct our mind towards these beings. And so, like as we began, we started developing metta for ourselves 
using a phrase, a metta wish, such as may I be happy and peaceful or may I live at ease and in peace. So then we use this word may I. I, this word <coughs> is used to refer to ourselves. And in the context of the metta practice, this is perfectly fine. Actually, that's the way uh, to do it. Some people or some meditators think that they should not use the word I or me based on their personal meditation practice or based on their theoretical understanding of the Buddha's teaching, they know or they have experienced that there is no so-called I or me or a self or a soul. They may have had a personal experience of anatta, of not-self. And so by experiencing anatta, they saw or realized that these processes in body and mind, that they are just processes happening in a natural way. These processes in body and mind happening as natural processes devoid of an inherently existing I, me, self or soul. But we have to understand that in the context of the Vipassana meditation practice, we do not stay on a conventional level. Well, at the beginning of our Vipassana meditation practice, we are still on the conventional level. But gradually, as our mindfulness and concentration deepens, we come to understand and experience that these concepts of words are just pointers to various processes in body and mind. And then we come to see and experience that these processes in the body and mind are devoid of any substantial entity, devoid of any substantial entity that we could um, take as the me or the I or the self. And so then we come to see these processes in the body and mind on the absolute level. That's where the Vipassana meditation practice aims at. To see that on an absolute level there is no so-called I, me, self or soul. There is no so-called uh, friend or enemy or whatever being. There we understand these are natural processes of body and mind that are happening due to causes and conditions.
But as I said, our metta meditation practice happens on a conventional level. It's a relational practice. And so, so we stay on this level of referring to others, benefactors, enemies, animals, referring to us as I or me. But here in this practice, we use these words or these concepts based on the understanding that on the absolute level, there is no substantial I or me. And I think even if we do not deeply understand that on an absolute level there is no so-called I or self or me, we still can perfectly practice the metta meditation because to be kind and friendly is still better with a sense of I and me rather than not being friendly and kind. So now, metta not only as a noun, loving kindness, friendliness, benevolence, but metta as a verb. And I want to read a little verse of the Buddha. If one shows kindness with a clear mind, even once, for living creatures, by that one abides in a wholesome state. I repeat, if one shows kindness with a clear mind even once for living creatures, by that one abides in a wholesome state. So if one shows kindness Metta, as I said, usually we use it as a noun, translating it as loving kindness, friendliness, benevolence, universal law, uh, love, unconditional love. And so through the practice of metta meditation, we develop and strengthen this quality of kindness, of unconditional love in our heart and mind. And so eventually, uh, metta becomes very strong and powerful. But even if metta has become very strong and very powerful, the work is not yet done work is not yet finished. Once having attained a very um, strong and powerful degree of metta, this is 
not enough. It's not something that you then can tick off your list and say, done with it, now what is next? Because metta is something we constantly need to engage in. We need to manifest it all the time. We, we need to manifest it with all our being, in our actions of body, and in our speech. The Buddha also used the word metta as a verb, metta-yati. And so this emphasizes the fact that metta, kindness, is something we need to do or we need to engage in. As it is expressed in this verse, like it begins, if one shows kindness, so we show kindness or we can enact kindness or we can manifest kindness or we can be friendly, we can be kind and loving, we are benevolent. And the fact that we need to engage in it, that we need to constantly mm, do it, is also uh, present in the expression metta bhavana, what we can translate as developing loving kindness. So bhavana as development or cultivation. Or quite literally, bhavana means causing to be. So metta bhavana causing kindness to be, causing benevolence to be. And as I said, this kindness, this benevolence needs to be directed towards somebody, a living being. And as I have already pointed out, our kindness, our benevolence, our metta is directed at another person or living being, but the practice is to develop, to cultivate this quality in ourselves, in our heart and mind. We simply take this other person, this other living being, as the object for our metta meditation practice so that we can cultivate and strengthen this beneficial quality in ourselves. <coughs> metta as 
loving-kindness or friendliness, unconditional love, is not simply a nice idea. It's not just um, an official intellectual state or thought, but actually it's a living, we could say, emotion or a living state of heart and mind. As I said, something we constantly need to engage in. It's not something static. So through this practice, we come more and more to really um, experience or feel this quality of metta towards another being. And so then, at that time, we are engaging in it. Then it is alive. But at other times, yeah, we don't really experience it, we don't really feel it. So, you have been practicing metta now for three days, and in the practice of the last three days, you have surely come to see the difference of just thinking thoughts of loving-kindness and actually experiencing this uh, quality of the heart and mind. As I've pointed out, the words and the phrases we use, they act as a helpful basis and support for the feeling of metta to generate it or uh, to become stronger. And in the beginning of the practice, it may be it may be on this level that we practice, just repeating this meta-wish, the meta-phrases. But we repeat them with a heartfelt intention to cause kindness uh, to come into being, to arise. So the words, the phrases, they act as a helpful and useful support for the practice, but the words or phrases alone are not enough. The Buddha has said that there is nothing that changes as rapidly as the mind. This is found in the Anguttara Nikaya. The mind is constantly shifting attention from one object to another. It is constantly shifting between wholesome states of mind and unwholesome mind states. Or it's all the time shifting between good and bad uh, states of mind. 
And so even if we have just one moment of loving kindness in our heart and mind, then we have ennobled our heart mind with a beneficial state of mind. And the other day I said how long a moment is defined. That's the time it takes to snap your fingers or to blink your eyes or to pull the other of a cow, a goat. And so if we have one moment of loving kindness, then we are ennobling our heart, mind, with a beneficial and skillful uh, quality. And at the same time, we have reduced our negativity by one moment. So in that one moment, when loving kindness is present, in that moment there is no ill will, no anger, no irritation, no frustration. There is also no craving, no attachment, no envy. So we might think that just having one moment of loving-kindness, this doesn't really make a big difference. This doesn't really matter. But actually, it makes a greater difference than we think. Each moment of loving-kindness is actually very powerful and can have far-reaching effects. I think we have all experienced times when we were caught in negativity or times when we thought that everything went against us. And in such moment, moments it seems so difficult, it seems even impossible to think a kind thought. In such a moment or at such a time, we cannot think of one good reason why anyone should deserve our kindness. Even though it seems impossible or very difficult, we should try anyway. Can we just think a kind thought? Can we just think a meta-wish for a person we respect or who is very dear to us? And even though our meta may not come from the deepest place in our heart, already the intention to think a kind thought turns the mind into a good, into a wholesome direction. So, even if it is just for a brief moment, like having a kind thought, a meta-thought, for a brief moment, it will have a transformative effect on our heart and mind it will help change the dynamic 
of our heart and mind. This really makes a difference. And so in this way, this can be a helpful way of getting out of our negativity when we are really stuck in negative thought patterns, in destructive emotions. So this can be a first step of um, disentangling the tangle. An example. You surely have heard of Sharon Salzberg. You may have even practiced meditation with her. And she also has engaged in intensive metta meditation practice. She teaches it um, also, and she has also written books about the metta metta meditation practice. So at one time she practiced intensively metta under the guidance of Sayadaw Upandita. And after her retreat she went back home and one day she dropped a plate and um, It broke into pieces. And the very first thought that arose was, damn, you're a failure, you're useless, you are worthless. And this was her very habitual reaction, grounded in the very low self-esteem she had had for many years when she was young. But then, immediately after that thought had arisen, Another thought arose, and this was a complete surprise to Sharon. It was the thought, but I love you anyway. So through her intensive metta meditation practice, she had been rewiring her mind, her heart. Or we also can see this practice of metta meditation as setting up a much more beneficial default setting. Or we can speak in terms of deconditioning our unskillful <coughs> and harmful reactions, thought patterns. Or else you can see this practice in terms of a new conditioning, a new conditioning of skillful and beneficial states of heart and mind. So instead of falling into our negative and harmful habitual responses, we train our heart and mind to react in more positive, in more skillful and beneficial ways. Like 
in the same way we go to the gym to train and strengthen our muscles, we practice metta meditation to strengthen skillful and beneficial reactions and responses. Brain researchers say that each repetition of a certain thought or a certain reaction makes the grooves in the brain deeper. So this means that the neuronal pathways in the brain are strengthened and with that the likelihood of falling again into the same habitual reaction increases. And this is a vicious circle. The more this happens, the more this habit will become. The more it will become strong. And as a result, it's very difficult to get out of this deeply ingrained habitual reaction or thought patterns. Also the Buddha had realized that without the use of intricate and expensive machines, but by simply looking very deeply and clearly into the workings of his mind, um, he realized and said, something along these lines, what one often thinks about, that becomes the habit of the mind. So, the remedy to get out of this unskillful, harmful, destructive patterns and reactions, so the remedy is a serious training. On the one hand, a serious training mm, to have a clear mind to see and recognize these patterns. And so this is done through the practice of vipassana meditation. And then, on the other hand, also a serious training to rewire the neuronal pathways in, in the mind, in the brain. So with, to rewire the, the habitual reactions with positive and skillful reactions such as metta, loving-kindness. Metta is said to be the opposite of dosa. Dosa is the party word which connotates all forms of ill will, anger, frustration, enmity, hatred, irritation, 
and the like. And in one of his discourses, found also in the Anguttara Nikaya, the Buddha made it very clear that metta is the opposite and the antidote to ill will or to any form of dosa. And he said that ill will or any form of anger, aversion, cannot be present when there is metta. And likewise, when metta is present in the heart, in the mind, then at that time there cannot be ill will or dosa. And so when metta, loving-kindness, becomes really powerful and strong through the cultivation of it, then it starts to pervade the whole heart and mind. It starts to suffuse our whole being. You can really also feel it on a cellular level that each cell in the body is suffused with this loving um, quality of metta. And so when our whole being, the heart, the mind, is suffused with metta, then dosa cannot arise. Then any form of ill will or anger has no, no room to enter into the heart, the mind. And so, when a person is able to dwell in metta, to live by metta, and this person is engaged of, engaged in manifesting um, metta, then any form of dosa is absent, and this state is called by the Buddha the liberation of the mind by loving-kindness. So the liberation of the mind by loving-kindness. We must understand that in this case the word liberation does not refer to the state of complete liberation or complete enlightenment. It simply refers to that state of the heart and mind which is liberated from ill will, anger, frustration, and so on. So the heart-mind is liberated from dosa as long as metta is powerfully and strongly present. People have different temperaments, they have different dispositions. And it is said that people who, with an angry temperament, or people who are short-tempered, that these kinds of people should engage in the practice of loving-kindness. So to um, cultivate an antidote to their anger or short-temperedness. 
Whereas people with a lustful or greedy disposition, they should engage in the so-called asuba practice, which means to reflect on the non-beauty of the body. This can be done, for example, by contemplating the 32 parts of the body. So to reflect on these 32 parts of the body, which constitute the body, to reflect that there is nothing inherently beautiful or attractive in these parts, such as the hair, or the lungs, the urine, bias, bones, feces, and so on. So to see that this body must age, it's disintegrating, and it must die. So there is no substantial beauty that can be found in the body. And so in this way, this contemplation helps to lessen one's attachment or infatuation with one's own body or the body of somebody else. But coming back to the metta, so with the cultivation of this benevolent and loving quality that we call metta, we strengthen an incredibly skillful and beneficial state of heart and mind. And when a certain quality is strengthened, it means that its opposite quality will become weaker. Or let's look at it this way. The stronger our metta becomes, the more space it occupies in our heart and mind. And because the loving-kindness occupies more and more space in our heart and mind, then there is less space for its opposite, less space for dosa, ill-will, anger, aversion, and so on. And so as a result of this metta-meditation practice, the force of dosa is weakened. And this means that angry reactions become less frequent. And when they still do happen, then usually they are less strong and less overwhelming. And in this position, with a good base of metta in our heart, we will be all we will be able to overcome any anger or aversion uh, much more easily. So coming back to this verse by the Buddha, if one shows kindness with a clear mind, even once for living creatures, by that, one abides in a wholesome state. And with this, we come back to the quote of Sayadaw Upandita that I mentioned the first night. Do you remember? 
in regard to the practice of meditation, how he defined meditation. He defined it as, this is what meditation means, the cultivation of skillful or wholesome states which enable wisdom to blossom. So metta is definitely a skillful and wholesome state that supports us greatly on our path to liberation. And on top of that, it has so many benefits in our day-to-day life. So I will talk in another talk about the benefits of metta in our day-to-day life. I want to end this talk with a quote from Acharya Buddharakita. He was an Indian monk. He passed away three years ago. He was an engineer, but then joined the Indian army during the Second World War, but became disenchanted with the worldly life and ordained as a monk when he was 26. It was also him who established the Mahabodhi Society in Bangalore, and it has uh, many branches. So anyway, I will finish with his quote, and after that we sit still for a few moments. If the quality of metta is sufficiently cultivated through metta bhavana, the meditation on universal love, the result is the acquisition of a tremendous inner power which protects and heals both oneself and others. Thank you for your kind attention. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.